and we'd go and take a ferry or two ferries and get to a little community hall and f have four bands play for the people there. And you can imagine as soon as we'd get in the bus, the music would start. All the Scottish fiddlers would like, we'd still be parked in front of the, we had not even take off yet, that all the fiddles would bust out. They played, they played, and we'd get to the ferry, we'd get off the bus, get on the ferry, play on the ferry, then get back on the bus, play some more on the bus. And it was just so magical to see how important they, it seems like they're gonna die if they're not gonna play their fiddle. It's that important. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh, and for this podcast, we talk to Nadine Landry, who grew up in Canada in the French-speaking province of Quebec. She now lives in the Yukon with her husband, Stephen Sammy Lind. They are both fine musicians and members of the Foghorn String Band. Sammy plays the fiddle, and Nadine plays the bass. Nadine is an accomplished singer and guitar player as well. I first met Nadine when Foghorn performed at the Ole Old Time Music Festival in Olympia, Washington in 2015. Here Nadine talks about her musical family, and in particular her grandmother who played the fiddle, and the rewards and perils of being a traveling musician, especially when it comes to playing and traveling with a bass. My name is Nadine Landry. I live in Whitehorse in the Yukon. I'm an, originally from Quebec on the East Coast in the Gaspésie. And I play the upright bass with the Falkhorn String Band. So tell me about your family background and the music in your family. Yeah, on my mom's side, uh, everybody plays music. Um, I think it, my great-grandma played the accordion. And then she had seven kids, and except one, all the siblings, they all played fiddle and guitar. And um, so my grandma was a fiddle player, but she always said she preferred playing the guitar and backing up at dances and let her older brothers play the, the fiddle and older sisters. And I think it started with one of her older brothers that had a fiddle, and he was um, a logger, so he would be away a lot. And he would tell all the people in the family to not touch his fiddle while he was away. And what did my grandma do, of course? She played the fiddle and picked it up when he was not around and tried to learn some, some tunes. And I think one of the Christmas party was boasting that he was the best fiddle player in the family. And she said, well, I play the fiddle too. He's like, really? And then she picked up the fiddle and played great, like great tune. And everybody was like, what? Didn't know you played the fiddle? And... This whole story, it seems so common in, in, in families that, that play the fiddle and you're not allowed, but then you do it anyways kind of thing. Yeah, I recorded Melvin Wine some years ago and he's got a classic story like that where he's really afraid of his and, and I recorded him about a lot of his family stories and I began to get the sense his, his father was a son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no getting around. I think my grandma's father was not the nicest man. I, I think he loved the music and stuff, but there are some stories where they knew for a long time there was going to be a dance on the Saturday and they had spent the whole week working on her dress and everything and come Saturday, he didn't let her go to the dance, like that kind of stuff. Like, 
come on. I never got a chance to meet him or anything, but um, some but he, stories I heard. But he played the fiddle. Yeah, I think he played the fiddle, too. There, there is a the French-Canadian story, I don't know if you heard it growing up, in the tradition about uh, the devil showing up at a dance. Oh, yeah. Yeah? And what, have what version of that did you hear? Well, I think it happens in, like, so many villages, or they claim that it happened, and us, it was pretty close, maybe half an hour from my hometown in the um, the Metapedia Valley. There was a little village called Routierville, and it was a dance hall there that was all the dilapidated. It did not look good at all by the time that I grew up, but it used to be the dance hall. And I think her name was Rose, Rose La Tulipe, and she went to the dance. I think it was one of those things where her dad did not want her to go, and... And then this guy came on his horse, and the the feet of the horse, the paws, his horse hoofs or whatever, were so hot that it burned through the snow all the way to the the grass, I guess, and got out of his horse and walked into the dance hall, and everybody like turned around, and he grabbed Rose to dance with. And then she had a massive burnt mark in her back from the hand of the devil dancing with her. And, like, kind of everybody could not stop dancing, and the musicians were, like, not physically able to stop playing. And it uh, was one of those stories. And every time I we were driving through that valley and, like, looking at the dance hall, I'd, like, always get the chill, even though... Who knows if it happened for real, but and now the building is destroyed, and it makes me so sad. I was always kind of looking forward to seeing the site of the dance hall, walk, like driving by, but now it's, it's still in my memory, even though the building is not there. I think about it every time we drive by. The version I heard of the story was that um, the priest comes in and holds up the cross just before this stranger, which is the devil, is about to take Rose off forever. And he comes in and holds the cross up, and the devil has to let her go. And and she's a reformed woman after that. Oh. <laughs> you didn't hear that part of the story. I always I heard that part out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always this uh, idea of the church sort of being at war with the musicians, and particularly the fiddlers. That's uh, That's an old story. So again, instances where you saw your grandmother play at a certain time, or what what was it about the fiddle that began to draw your attention? Well, I think it was so common, like from when I was born, we had family gatherings and music, and before we were able to play any instrument, my cousins and I would just be dancing and singing a little, and it was just such a natural part of our family, and growing up and starting going to school, and I kind of just expected everybody, every family would have music gatherings like the ones we had, and talking with some friends, and I remember um, someone said, oh, I have to go to this family thing that we have, and kind of looking bummed out about it, and I was like, well, why are you sad about it? Like, you're going to play music and your grandma's going to play fiddle and everybody's going to be, like, playing piano and guitar. Like, why Why are you not happy about this? And they were like, oh, our family gatherings are not like that. We, The men play cards and the women sit and they talk and nothing ever happens. So I think at that moment I realized that my family was special, that 
we were having a good old time, and it was not like that in every family. So then I just, it made me appreciate it even more, just to see. Well, the ritual in the family was the fiddles on the wall. Then Grandma would pick it up, hand it to Grandpa. He would tune it, even though he didn't play it, but he would tune it and then hand it back to Grandma, and then she would play. And I don't know, she's learned a bunch of tunes from from people and also from the radio. I think there was a radio station from Virginia that would reach all the way to eastern Quebec, and a lot of tunes I think she got from the radio, I guess, and some, but also from some other guys. So the, the title of the tune she never knew, so it was always like Rogers Real and Roland's whatever, you know, like La Tourna, Roger And when she does not know what to play, then she would turn to Grandpa and he was like, oh, play play that tune. And he would hum maybe like the first couple notes and then she would play it. But she never knew the names of the tunes. She didn't even know. She played Faded Love and she didn't know that there were words to it. And one day she was playing it and then I started singing it and she turned around like, what, there's words to that song? And she did not speak uh, English at all. And maybe she had a few English classes, and, and when we, you know, I bring Sammy over to the family, he doesn't really speak French, and it's a lot of hand gestures and stuff like that. And, and we were playing uh, Be Nobody's Darling But Mine Love one day, and Grandma just starts singing the whole song in English, and we just was so amazed, like, Grandma, like, what is this? And she was like, oh, when I was nine years old, this old man came to our house and he sang that song and I learned it and I kept singing it and singing it and then I've never forgotten it. So it was just really funny because I'd never really heard her speak English and all of a sudden she's singing Be Nobody's Darling But Mine Love like perfectly. All the verses, the chorus, everything. So that was awesome. <laughs> Such a fun moment. And nobody also knew that they that she knew that song. My mom and my uncles all turned around and, wow, that was great. <laughs> and that's your grandmother, and you're singing the song yeah. that she had learned when she was so young. Yeah. That's lovely. I love how these things get passed on in families. Did she do the dancing with her feet? Yeah, she, she could not play the fiddle without doing the, the, the tapping. But in her case, it was um, not percussive at all because she would do it with like slippers on the carpet. But it was just the gesture. It seemed impossible for her to just play the fiddle without doing the, the foot tapping thing. Uh, so, is, there, is there a word for that? Um, I think they call it podorythmie. Okay. I've seen it done. Yeah. I can't do it. I'm a fiddler. And to me, it's like chewing gum and walking. It's, right. I maybe could learn how to do it. So she couldn't play without doing that. Exactly, yeah. It's lovely. Do you think um, any of these traditions or I mean, go back to France itself, which is a long time ago? I'm probably. It's such I mean, an isolated like part that we live in. Like, It's eight hours east of Montreal. There's not a whole lot of people, but... Tons of rich tradition all across the the region is um, it's almost like a quilt of culture where there's Acadians that fled the deportation and ran north and got help from the First Nation, the Mi'kmaq people. So um, every time there's a Mi'kmaq village, right next to it there's an Acadian village, and then it's followed by a loyalist village, and then it starts over again. Mi'kmaq, Acadian, loyalist. So. 
like English and French, English and French. And, um, and are some of these loyalist ones that came up from the United States yeah, after that, the revolution? Yeah, exactly. That oh, so wanted all, to be part of, of, of All outcasts England. in a yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I find that in West Virginia. West Virginia's had a really tough history. They've been, I think, seriously abused on so many levels in terms of the resources and political power and corruption. And yet it's a place where the culture stays so alive. Seems it seems like it's more, it gets amplified by that experience. Yeah, and our, I mean, in our experience, it seems every um, culture that had lots of trouble has the happiest music, like the Cajun, the Irish people, the, like the music, they, it's taken so seriously there. The Jewish people. Yeah. Again, mm. people have been wanderers for so, so many generations. And we have ties with, um, family ties with the Magdalen Islands in the St. Lawrence Gulf. You have to drive to um, Prince Edward Island and then take like a seven-hour ferry to get to this little group of islands that, once again, a lot of Acadians were dropped off there. And also, I think a lot of Irish people came there. It was kind of a quarantine island before they could come to Canada. So this amazing rich culture of fiddle again in that little tiny island it's maybe like one mile wide by 15 20 miles i don't know exactly the dimension but it's so tiny but so rich and i think on my grandma's side there were people that lived there like her uncles and and one day at my parent at my grandparents cabin one fiddler from that island came and spent the afternoon and played the fiddle and he was an amazing, amazing fiddler. Uh, his name was Aurélien Genvre. And every time we go back to my grandparents' cabin, someone always brings up, remember that afternoon that Aurélien came and he played the fiddle and it was amazing. We, it was probably one of the most magical afternoons. The fact that someone, I don't know who, but someone brought it to my family and then the whole afternoon, it was tune after tune, it did not stop till I don't know when in the morning, you know. This brings up my own prejudice of a sort because I play the fiddle and I'm fascinated with it as an instrument. But this, its ability, almost shamanistic ability, to create a memory that was that lasting it played such a role in that moment. Of course, it was the human beings and, and their memory and the songs and the coming together, but this little wooden box, mm-hmm. a few strings, had to be there for that to really be something remembered for so long. Yeah, that and the food. It seems, looking back at all the family photos, it's the family playing music and the family eating. That's It's, it's really hilarious to look back through all the family albums and like, We've had so many good jams, and we've had so many good meals. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's what we do. <laughs> so when did you decide to play the uh, bass? How did um, that happen? Well, I was playing the guitar. I got a guitar when I was 11 for Christmas and played some and sang. I always sang. It was the first thing that I ever did, and then... I moved to the Yukon. I went to visit my aunt who was working up there and I loved it so much that I just ended up staying and never going back home kind of thing and calling my parents, oh, can you send me this box and send me another box? And after a while they stopped asking when I was going to come back and accept the fact that I had moved across the country. 
And uh, a friend of mine had a bass for sale because he was getting a better one. And right away I was like, Matt, I'm going to buy your bass. And he said, oh, I didn't know you played the bass. And I said, I've never touched it. I just feel it's a good move. I should do that. I, I feel it. And also because if I later on would have decided to get a bass, the shipping cost would have probably been more than the cost of the bass itself. So so I got the bass, and it was it was really awesome to just sit down. That's when I was just started sitting down and, and listening to the music and try to isolate parts of the recordings of, okay, I'm going to just listen to the singing and the words, and oh, this time around I'm just going to listen to what the bass could do. And the first time I heard like a bass line was like, oh, yeah, I want to do that, I want to do that. And the guy who sold me the bass ended up moving away for a while, so I ended up with all his gigs and not really knowing what I was doing, but playing with friends that trusted me and were really, really patient in me figuring out this instrument. And it's one of the best things I ever did. I think it was by this upright bass. It was not great or anything, but it's how I learned. Do you know what, who made it? Or was it a character? Oh, it was like a Chinese bass with a gigantic neck that I had to take to the luthier and shave like a quarter inch off the neck because my fingers are not that long and I could not wrap my fingers around the neck. So just to make it a little bit smaller and easier to play and the fingerboard was all warped and sanded down all the way so there was almost no more ebony left but that was able to make it more smooth. And then uh, got a better one and now the bass that I'm playing right now is the best bass I've ever played and it breaks my heart that the much touring that we do, I can't take it everywhere. Every time I've flown with it, the airlines have broken it and it was fixed so many times and now it's real good solid fix. Nothing has happened to it but I'm so scared to take it on the road so every moment that I have with this bass is magical and I wish it was more often but with the amount of touring we do I have to borrow basses or rent basses and sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're really bad and sometimes they're broken already and I have to make do and hope for the best really. You're not a large person so the, I mean tall wise so here you have this large instrument so that's uh, what's that relationship like you, you like having something that big that you're thumping on in the band or yeah I can't really imagine playing I mean I love playing guitar and I'm learning the fiddle but the bass is I really like it I can't play electric bass for the reason that it's it's hard to play an instrument and have the sound come in from a box five feet away from me like, just to feel the vibration is something so important to me I, I really like it we flew uh, to Scotland one time, and uh, we're just so happy. We're going to have a month-long tour and playing up in the Shetland Islands. And so we get to Aberdeen. We're all super stoked to be there, and the base did not show up. And we had to wait all day in Aberdeen and then take a ferry later on that day. It's like a 17-hour ferry up to the Shetlands. And we're sitting in the pub, and finally the bass arrives one hour before the ferry is scheduled to leave. And, yay, the bass is here. So I open the case, and the neck is broken. And right away, this little angel right next to me, she looks. I turn around, and she says, oh, my brother's a luthier in Shetland. He'll fix your bass. Like, oh, 
perfect. So get there and the festival hooks me up with another bass to play. And meanwhile, the guy, the luthier, fixed the bass and did not charge me anything. Like just such an amazing person. Ewan Thompson was his name. Then he fixed it. Then we do the tour. It's perfect. Nothing happens to the bass. And then on the way back, flying out, the, the airline is... They don't want to take the bass on the plane. And I ask, well, why? Oh, because our handlers, they have a maximum of 20 kilos that they can lift. And I was like, well, can they just go like three of them or four of them? Just come on, hook a sixter up, you know? And um, she was like, no, they're not going to do it. And I said, well, can you just please ask? Maybe one of them's a musician and he'll, he'll do it just because we're a big family all the musicians we help each other that's what we do and finally like they took it and she seemed really mad that I had won and she had lost and that whole attitude it's like well you should be happy for me we're all getting like my base cannot stay in Aberdeen I'm flying out in an hour like what am I supposed to do just leave it here and it's gigantic case because the base itself is pretty huge but imagine in a hard shell case it's it's heavy, and, and finally it worked, but it broke again on the way home. And it, uh, Just for the handling, it just, it just breaks. Yeah, and also I think when you go through custom and security, they have to open it and check everything, and then I think that closing it, it's kind of hard to close, and maybe they just stepped on it trying to latch all the, the latches. I don't know. should put a camera and see how it's handled. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You can put a camera in it now, like they would do, the way things are. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever happened to your grandmother's violin? Um, she had another fiddle that she passed around to all the grandkids, and you had one year to learn one tune. And if you did not do that, then it would get passed to another, another cousin. And so it went through like quite a few of them, and now my cousin Ginny has it. And she, she's playing it a little bit. She, at least she, she learned that one tune in one year, so she deserved it. And Grandma just passed away this, um, just before Christmas this year. And I don't know. Her fiddle was not the greatest fiddle, sadly. It was one of those that had, like, gigantic quarter-inch hookup on it because she would play some dances with electric guitar and drums and stuff like that, so... One of my uncle suggested that she gets a pickup in her fiddle, like built in. So it it never sounded that great, but it's the sound that I was used to. So it was grandma, and it sounded great. It would have a lot of just almost energy about it or presence because it was hers. She exactly. Had, she had interacted with it so so often. Yeah. Well, um, I could go on with you for a while, and I know your schedule is tight, and you have a workshop. So, uh, is there, I mean, and these stories are telling like the base going up to the Shetland line. It's great. I lived a year in Scotland, in Inverness, mm. and I was studying Scottish fiddle back then. And I got up to the Orkney Islands, but I never got up to Shetland Islands. And you know, it's a great uh, fiddle tradition up there. I really like it. Yeah, we were so lucky to be able to do the Shetland Folk Festival and then tour across Scotland and Denmark and finish the tour at the Orkney Festival. So we got to do both in that one month period. But the the Shetland Folk Festival, but and also Orkney were amazing because they don't expect everybody from all the other islands to come all in Lerwick. They take the festival to the little communities. So every day they would pack four bands 
in a big tour bus and we'd go and take a ferry or two ferries and get to a little community hall and have four bands play for the people there. And you can imagine as soon as we'd get in the bus, the music would start. All the Scottish fiddlers would like, we'd still be parked in front of the, we had not even takeoff yet, that all the fiddles would bust out. They'd play, they'd play, then we'd get to the ferry, we'd get off the bus, get on the ferry, play on the ferry, then get back on the bus, play some more on the bus, and it was just so magical to see how important. It, it seems like they're going to die if they're not going to play their fiddle. It's that important. And there was a really funny story of um, a singer-songwriter that came to play in Shetland one time. And throughout that night, he was asking people, like, you know, feel free to join me in singing. Like, sing with me, sing with me. And nobody would really sing. And the last song, he said, well, this is my last song I would really love to everybody to join me for this last song and everybody grabbed their fiddle from under their chair and started playing the fiddle <laughs> they just did not want to sing all they wanted to do was play the fiddle <laughs> that's obsessive <laughs> they are a little bit obsessed and I love like even the young people they're just like pushing each other and like giving each other like oh well I haven't heard a, a march what what What's wrong with you? You haven't played a march in like two days and kind of always pushing each other like, oh, that note was flat. Like, you, you got to play better and like always trying to give each other a little nudge like that. Like, come on, play the fiddle, play the fiddle all the time. They're such amazing players there. In Scotland, it was the first time I heard McPherson's Lament, which if you've heard that or know the story, and I think there's variations and I think... Uh, the last of Callahan, or, or there's different variations, but basically this is a fellow who has been arrested for, well, cattle stealing, but really what it was was just clan warfare, and he happened to get caught by the clan that was controlling the political apparatus in this mm -hmm. town. I should know the story better than I do. And he eventually is going to be uh, uh, hung, and uh, probably on trumped-up charges, and, and uh, Robert Burns did a put words to the melody that existed for a lot longer and uh, reprieve or pardon was on its way and they set the clocks forward so they could get the execution done. They somehow got wind that that there was going to be this royal intervention. And so at the, at the, from what I understand the story, there's different variations. He stood up there with his fiddle and he, he asked to play a tune as his last act on this earth. And they said, uh, all right. And he plays it and apparently plays this melody that's now known as McPherson's Lament. And then he offers his fiddle to the anyone in the crowd. But because anyone who would have wanted that and showed affiliation to him would be under suspicion, everyone's too afraid to say anything. So in great anger that no one would take his fiddle, he cracks it over the executioner's head and somehow jumps, you know, and causes the execution a little quicker. And that's called McPherson's Lament. Whoa! Have you ever heard that story? <laughs> no! No, I was just wondering if you ever came like across those stories or, or any tunes that have these uh, great associations with the, the fiddle or, or... Yeah, well, the hangman's reel, isn't it? The, kind of the same thing where he was given a fiddle and in a really weird tuning, and like kind of if you can play a tune with that, you won't have to die or something like that. Ah. And just bust down into hangman's reel with this funky tuning and then... He lived, or something I like that. I didn't know that, yeah. And Camp Chase has that. Because it's a pretty famous 
uh, Québécois tune as well, Le Rille du Pendu, The Hangman's Reel. What would it's, we call in French? Uh, Le Rille du Pendu. Ah, yeah. That's the story associated with it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Camp Chase, that story, you know the tune? Camp Chase is a great tune. It's done in Cross A and uh, comes out of West Virginia and I think the Carpenter family. Uh, but he, um, one of their ancestors was in Camp Chase, which was the northern, uh, one of the prison camps for, for prisoners during the war, during the Civil War. And uh, the commandant of the camp decides he's going to have this contest because there's a lot of fiddlers in this camp, these southerners that so many people did play back then. And so he's going to have a contest, and he borrows fiddles from someplace for these prisoners to play. And he, to make it really interesting, he says, whoever wins, I'm going to let them go home. And you can imagine how much they want to go home. And this fellow gets up, and he plays, and I've heard different versions, but I like this one where basically they... Uh, he winds up tying for first, which I think was just cruel you know, on the part of the commandant. But he, this fella and uh, some other fella from Tennessee, let's say, they, they, and so they had to play another tune. But he was so nervous and so worked up that he couldn't think of any other tune that he just played. And so he started playing it again, but he just started making up parts to it. Oh. And he, he won. He was able to go home. And they and that's they say that's where that version of Camp Chase and some people you know know these tunes will say well that's really this tune, some leather breeches version or something in the past but this is what he made of it and I, I just love that image of Camp Chase and the stories that go with it. Nice. <laughs> so uh, this has been delightful. Uh, yeah. You could tell it's Valentine's Day today. That's right. It is Valentine's Day. So why don't you tell the story of how you decided this fiddler was the guy who was going to be in your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we first met at the Alaska Folk Festival in Juneau. And uh, that oh. was the first time that I ever saw Foghorn String Band, the original lineup. And I remember that weekend I was wearing wooden clogs and it was a hardwood floor. And I danced so hard. Like, I remember feeling so sore the next day, but so happy and ecstatic from the music I'd, I never heard any band play this kind of music with such energy it was there was not one person that was not dancing in the bar the Alaskan hotel and people hanging from the rafters it was it was completely nuts and secretly hoped so much that I could just build up the courage to go say hi and say like hey I, I play music too I can go play in a jam with you and we managed to Jam that weekend, and they came up every year. And I, you know, lived in Whitehorse. It was a two-hour drive and a five-hour, seven-hour ferry for me to get to Juneau. It was relatively easy. And and Juneau, it's really where I decided that I was going to play music And when I grew up. That's what I wanted to do more than anything. And then in 2008, there's a festival called the Pelican Boardwalk Boogie. That's another eight-hour ferry from Juneau. And Pelican is the old cannery village, fishing cannery, and it's only one long mile boardwalk and a few houses on stills and two bars and dorms, and that's all there is. And that's when Sammy and I got together for the first time, like really isolated place and spent the whole weekend and played and danced and um, kissed by the buck hunter game machine or something like that <laughs> and yeah it was i knew right away that i was gonna spend my life with him right yeah. there 
on, on the boardwalk. <laughs> I've been thinking of doing one show, which I haven't done yet, which is the spouses of fiddlers and uh, what their experience is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> any, any stories in that vein that you... Just the odd things of, you know, who are fiddlers and what, you know, what are they and how. I mean, of course, that's a gross generalization, but I wonder but, what my wife would say. And she yeah. plays with me. We, she plays banjo, so she loves that I play fiddle. But it's a, it's a force. It's a way that things get directed. Yeah, but it was great that, that first night the, uh, the guitar player had a problems with his hand and I was in the front dancing and all of a sudden I hear my name like, Hey, Dean, come play guitar. So I ended up playing guitar the whole night with um, Sammy and Caleb, and it was such a fun evening. And yeah. So that's how it worked out. So that was at the Pelican Festival? So, like... You got invited up on stage to yeah, play. So, like, basically joined a band and got a boyfriend in the same yeah. five minutes, and yeah. almost seven years now, and we've just been playing all the time, as much as we can, all the time, and it's... And you talked him into moving to the Yukon. Yeah. Well, it, it did not need that much work to do. He was a Minnesota boy, so he loves the winter, and winters in Portland are a little bit too wet and not enough snow, so now we can ski and snowshoe, and it's great. I love I love the Yukon, and it's a good, good fiddle tradition there, too. Uh, the Gwich'in people up north in the Yukon, they have a really cool fiddling tradition that they've adapted to their dancing too they have dances where there's not even a collar and if you don't know the dance like don't go on the dance floor they're gonna kick you out <laughs> so we're hoping to spend more time in the northern part of the Yukon it's a little village called Old Crow that there's no uh, road to get there you have to fly in or take a month-long trip on a canoe and this is where they have these dances, you're saying? Yeah, they have dances there, and uh, we and what, were lucky to be part of, uh, we went to um, the Moose Hide Gathering. It's uh, every other year that they do this gathering of a bunch of the Trondek Nation that lives in around Dawson City, and lots of people from Alaska and Northwest Territories, they all gather basket weaving and lots of dancing and, and fiddling, and so we, we got to play with them a whole afternoon and it was so cool to, they play lots, you know, almost some Western swing kind of numbers and some traditional that we, we did not know any of the tunes. It was, it was great. And then Sammy joined them on banjo for some of the dances. And then we learned to do their jigging and they have a few, um, the duck dance, I think they call it, and the handkerchief dance. So we, we learned a few of those, but we're really looking forward to spend more time. The, these are a lot of people came into that place, you think, originally for the gold rush way back in the day? Yeah, I mean, the gold rush took place in, what, 1898 there? But those are all the First Nation that have been living there for hundreds and hundreds so of years. First Nation. The Gwich'in, the Trendek, it's yeah, that, those would be the, the people with the big fiddle tradition. And I heard that um, maybe some people from the Orkneys, I think, had gone there like, you know, 100 years ago and brought their tunes so I'm, I'd really like to do some kind of project with some fiddling friends and from, from Orkney, and I would love to bring to the Yukon and see if they know similar tunes if that they've been passed down and learned over 100 years ago and what, what they are now compared to what they were when they first arrived. And I need to read that book that someone gave me called The Crooked Stovepipe. It's about uh, fiddling of like Athabascan and northern Canada 
in Alaska, I think. Crooked stovepipe. I'm going to get on it as soon as we get home. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much. Let's listen now to Nadine sing and play her bass with the Foghorn String Band. The title of the French-Canadian tune, in English, is My Old Wagon. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. ¶¶